pursuing whatever life was going to offer. For me, finding my physical metal, the way in which it really um, was powerful, was to physically challenge myself. And out of that came emotional wisdom, leadership, insights, and many, many other aspects that have made my life really rich. Welcome to the Forging Metal Podcast with your blacksmiths, Tara O'Brien and Ron Duran Jr. Come inside and grab your hammer. The fire is hot and ready. It's time to harden up. Let's get to work. The forge is now open. Former member of Congress and U.S. Senator from Colorado, and an experienced, very experienced, in fact, mountaineer. Mark Udall has climbed Colorado's 100 tallest peaks known as the Colorado Centennials and some of the taller peaks actually on the planet to include a few of the seven summits, which are the tallest peaks on each of the seven continents. We're so excited to have him here today. This is a huge topic for both Ron and I, and we have met with the senator, former senator, before and just heard just tidbits of these stories. So very excited to bring that topic here to Forging Metal today. And no, we are not going to turn this into a political podcast. You should know that for sure. We actually are very curious and fascinated to hear about Mark's experiences with mental toughness, resilience, and grit, because he has literally, I'm, I'm just guessing, experienced every single human emotion that you can on some of these journeys. Some of them he's been with close relatives, some with friends, and some alone and by himself and in very dangerous yet rewarding situations. So these journeys have brought him pain, joy, massive challenge, probably close to frostbite, if not frostbite, uh, failure, success, and unfortunately, loss. We are here to talk to him today about his why. Why does he do this? As he shares these amazing stories with us, we'll find out why he does it and what kept him going. Even today, he's still doing some of them. So Mark, we're so excited to have you joining us for a second time. Thanks. Thanks for being here. I'm Tara. It's great to be with you again. I'm looking forward to this conversation. So let's give, let's just kind of set the stage and give us a rundown of some of the more extreme outdoor adventures, just in a nutshell. What have you done over the years? Yeah, I love living outside and I love living outside 24 hours during the the process of the day. The stars at night, the sun rises, the morning begins, the way the weather changes, the way you're, you're all in with your senses and, uh, there's no, there's no time to be worrying particularly about the past, especially the, f- the future does loom, but you're in the, you're in the present, you're in, you're in the immediate. And I think that's how, I not only think, I know that's how we evolved as human beings. So for me, the, it was the love of being in, in, in connected. I think what's really at our, fundamentally at, at our core is human beings. I, I had a great role, role models in my life, my mother in particular, uh, had grown up riding. She was very handy with a rifle. She was a climber. She became a pilot later in her life. And she just had the attitude that I'm going to get my kids outside. It's Mother Nature's the best teacher. She's the best authority figure because you can't complain to Mother Nature. You just have to keep going. But that all, that all led me to ha- have a very early connection to nature and challenge. 
And it, I've been so lucky in my life, and particularly as we question in many respects our society and the opportunities that, that people have, I want to just leaven what I'm going to say with, with an understanding that growing up in an upper middle class family, I've had a lot of opportunities and, and, and to, to explore the concepts of adventure, taking risks and in, in, in ways that I'm just so fortunate uh, to, to have had. But in, in that context, I've climbed all over the world. I've, I've taken part in 12 international climbing expeditions. As you mentioned, I've climbed many, many peaks in Colorado and all over the United States. I, was a, I have been and still am a whitewater kayaker. I've walked very long distances in the, in the deserts, canyons of Utah and Arizona, including a 1,200-mile circular walk over a few years from Lee's Ferry back to Lee's Ferry. I love skiing in the backcountry being in it. I think maybe it's my Northern European genes. Cold weather actually invigorates me, although at 70, cold cold gets a little bit more of its way with me now. But so I just, for me, it was the, in the, in some, it, it was how I felt I was fully alive was, and still do when I'm, when I'm challenged and outdoors in those, in, in those many different kinds of settings. Wow, well, I hear walking twelve hundred miles. That's that's pretty extreme, right? Now we did, <laughs> we did it over the first eight hundred. We did over a two year period, and then we Maggie and I started our family, which, by the way, is one of the biggest adventures and longest expeditions you'll ever go on if you decide to have children. But we then, when I left the Congress, we were able to complete the last four hundred miles just three years ago, which. We, we were uh, proud of ourselves being in our 60s. We've put backpacks back on and walked about 400 miles over a, a month-long period from the head of Grand Gulch over in Utah, for your listeners who know where that is, all the way back to Lee's Ferry. That's still some of the wildest country left in the lower 48. Much of it sits on the Navajo Indian Reservation. You have to have a permit, and you want to be respectful of their traditions and their communities. But there's some remarkable country there to be explored and appreciated and and, and connected with spiritually. Wow. You know, I get, I get geeked out when I hear these stories. I, I, I think I, I think it's fair to say, Mark, you're, you are, you have a, you're an adventurer and I, and I, I relate to that. That resonates with me. I, I can, I'm going to be honest with you, Mark, since I'm finally getting behind the mic here. I know maybe this will come across wrong, but when I Go first heard that we were going to interview you for another podcast that we do for the university, and this is a, a leadership podcast that we did, and I said, oh, great. It's going to be a boring politician. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was, I, I'm going to be honest. I wasn't looking forward I, to great. it. I, I, I didn't know you at all, obviously. And sure. I said, oh, th- how, th- this can't be fun. <laughs> and, and and both Tara and I, when we got done, we go, holy moly, this this guy's fascinating. I didn't know they made politicians like <laughs> right, this. Right, right. <laughs> so yeah. anyway, I, I wanted to throw that out there that, that Mark you. is not what you would probably think of as, <laughs> as your typical politician. So one of the things that's fascinating about, about your background, Mark, is you've been on Everest. You've been high on Everest, I, I think, multiple times. I'm fast. I, I was fascinated by the book Into Thin Air and, and that yes. story behind that. That was really my first introduction to what it's like to be up there. Uh, and of course, that's just through a book. And, and that only goes so far. But I just remember it was just amazing to to hear the stories. And so, you know, things like the, the Kumbu Icefall and going going through the Kumbu Icefall and, and how scary that must be. What, you know, what, tell us uh, some stories about your time on Everest, what, what stands out to you? Was, was there a time when you were, when you were fearful and maybe what was that like? 
Yeah, the in, Into Thin Air is a powerful introduction to what high-altitude climbing involves. I, if I have one slight beef with John Krakauer, the, the author who who's a friend of mine, although I don't know him like I do some of my closest friends, is he, he rarely lets you see the, the beauty and the excitement and the power of being up high, because that, that was a tough situation that developed that particular year. But there, but having said that, what I'll tell people is there's at least an hour or two a day when you're at high altitude that you really appreciate being up there. The other 22 hours, pretty pretty <laughs> grueling. It's like having an ongoing uh, hangover because you're you're nauseous. You have a headache. You don't want to eat. It takes enormous willpower just to to uh, tie your boots and put all your your gear on. But there's something about the, again the human spirit that we're drawn to uh, challenge ourselves. And to see, and, and if it was, if we could, knew we could do it, or we knew we knew it was going to be easy, most of us wouldn't undertake uh, a challenge because it wouldn't be a challenge. And uh, so, there. But the, the the other elements that stand out for me is again what I mentioned just earlier is the immediacy of of the experience. It's right there in front of you. Uh, your needs have to be met on an ongoing basis. The, the team you're with, you you, you develop in most cases a camaraderie and a connection to the people you're with that will last you the rest of your life. And then, as I've alluded to, there, there's a, a remarkable beauty when you're up, up that high. When I reached the summit of the third highest mountain world, which is called Kanchenjunga, it's in eastern Nepal, on a beautiful, uh, warm day at 28,200 feet, I could see the stars at three in the afternoon because the sky isn't blue anymore. It's black. You're on the, you're on the edge of outer space. And at that point, not not because it's a bragging point, but as I went back and looked, I was the highest human on the planet for a few hours. It wasn't in an airplane flying intercontinentally or across the United States. And there's just uh, I, I, there's a there's a rapture of the heights, and this is where it got dangerous and can be dangerous. Scuba divers talk about the rapture of the deep that's triggered in part by the mix of uh, air you're breathing that isn't what you breathe at sea level. The same as at high altitude. And there's a sense, it's not that you, you feel immortal, but there's a sense that you're part of something really powerful and much bigger uh, than you alone. And when, when I reached the summit of Kanchenjunga, again, the third highest peak in the world, I felt, I felt a force much bigger than me, whether you want to call it God or what, what connects us, but, but it was certainly there and with me. And it, it, it provided me with additional energy because it, those elevations, you know, you take, even if you're using oxygen, you take five to seven breaths per step. So you, you're operating in, in, a, in, a, in a slow motion kind of environment, although it's as fast as you can go. So that's your reality at that time. I'll, I'll pause there and let you ask other questions to expand further. Wow. I'm just going to say the hair on my, you know, I always say it's a good podcast when the hair on my arm stands up and it just did. So, wow. What, what a story. And so that peak was how high, Mark? It's, it's 28,200 feet. Wow. Plus it's just about 40 feet lower than the second highest mountain in the world, which is called K2, which is, which is well known and, and arguably the most difficult high mountain in the world to climb. It's, it's certainly much more difficult in many respects than Everest. But none of those mountains should be uh, obviously treated lightly. Even with the scenes we've seen on Everest in these last few years of so many people there, all the other high mountains in the world have, have much less traffic because they're remote. 
they're not number one and so on. And, and Everest for a whole lot of factors has drawn this, this attention that for a lot of us who love high mountains and, and, and made a living climbing high mountains, it's, it was predictable. It's a little bit heartbreaking, but I'm not going to be critical of people who want to put themselves on the line, just like I put myself on the line. You know, something that stands out to me, what you said, is you said, why would we do it if it wasn't, you know, a challenge? And I would say there's a lot of people out there, and it's part of the reason why we started this podcast. There's a lot of people out there that that would say the exact opposite. I don't want to do it because it's going to be hard and it's going to be challenging, and I don't know if I can do it. What do you? What? How do you think that's different for you? That seems to motivate you, but I would say for some people they shy away from that. Any any thoughts on that? Yeah, and I I want to be respectful of those people because I bet in other parts of their life or lives to use the plural they're willing to to take on risks in what what maybe to me wouldn't seem as an adventure but would would you could characterize as an adventure and 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 so I think that spirit manifests in, in, in many different ways but for me as I as I became an adult I I thought our society was becoming increasingly fluent which it was and increasingly sedentary and increasingly out of touch with the this magnificent planet on which in which we live and for me and then as I looked at becoming an adult and pursuing whatever life was going to offer for me finding my physical metal what I understood would then lead me to emotional spiritual intellectual strength as well and there was a little voice in my head saying you think you're hot stuff dude get off your tail and go push yourself, put yourself in unknown situations. And for me, that the way in which it really was powerful was to physically challenge myself. And out of that came emotional wisdom, leadership, insights, and many, many other aspects that have made my life really rich. My wife says, and she's a climber, by the way, and that's how we connected. She says, I find virtue in suffering. Uh, <laughs> I like it. And I that's like true. It. But but I'm just like everybody else. I love my creature comforts. and and uh, But it, in many ways, challenging myself in, in those respects then makes all of that, the other parts of civilized life, th- that much more, more appreciated. There, if I could add one thing, there's a famous British climber by the name of Mo Antoine, and he talked about feeding the rat. You know, the Brits have wonderful uh, syntax and, and language, not to mention their accents, but... And the rat was this little voice in your head that I just alluded to that would say to him, hey, Mo, you think you got the world by the tail. You think you've got it all figured out. You don't challenge yourself in ways that scare you, that will physically stress you, as well as emotionally and spiritually. And that'll that'll enrich in your life. And it'll, it'll ensure that you never get arrogant or complacent or just sitting there waiting for life to come for you, to, to you. You're going to go out and make life as rich as it possibly could be. Now he'd say sometimes he overfed the rat, <laughs> <laughs> and I've done and I've done that where you, you know, you're twenty, you haven't had sleep for twenty four hours. Like when I climbed the third highest mountain in the world, you're twenty eight thousand feet, you're out of water, you're you're deeply deeply tired, and you're saying to yourself, why did I think this was going to be worthwhile? Why why did I feed the rat to this to this level? But out of that, you you have no choice. That's the other thing that's so great. You have no choice. You can whine and complain and, and plop down in the snow, but nobody's going to come rescue you. Nobody's going to come make things better. You, you, it's on you to, 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 to hang in there. 
It's so interesting that you say that because, you know, I, I think there might be a misconception that most people would think going off and climbing Everest, you know, which is over 29,000 feet, the highest peak on the planet, and, you know, scuba diving to deep depths. These are things that confident, arrogant, adrenaline junkies do in their in their weekend spare time. And what yeah. you're saying is, no, you actually used it the opposite way of don't be arrogant, go out and, and find the, the thing that, that cuts you down and shows you what you are actually made of. So it's interesting that that's how you use it rather than, oh, Everest, yeah, I got that in the bag, no problem. I'm just going to go knock that off my bucket list. Yeah, I never felt smaller and more vulnerable than I was standing on close to the summit of Kanchenjunga. And there's another story to why I didn't go to the true summit. I was about 10 feet below that, the true summit. And, and that raises the question, why do you climb? Is it the summit or is it the journey? But you're, you're exactly right. I, I, you, you feel humbled in, the, in those the Himalayas or any mountains. Himalayas in particular are so immense and, and there's so much happening there. But it, uh, it also fits in, Tara, with my work for Outward Bound, where we taught through the wilderness people skills that were not just how to read a map, and how to climb a steep snow gully, but how to work in a group, how to take what you learned an hour bound back to the other world, the re- that, that other real world. It's that very real when, when you're late in the day and you've got to descend 2,000 feet in the, in the mountains or you're in the canyon country and you don't know where your next water is. But those experiences can translate into your broader life. And again, there are other ways to teach yourself that and to find those inner strengths. They don't necessarily have to be in the physical realm. But for me, that was where uh, I really found the insight and the, the motivation and this and the strength, not just physical, but mental, particularly mental strength to keep on keeping on. Do you think that's something that can be learned? If it's not an attribute that you're born with or that you acquire early on at a young age via your parents or just, you know, the nature of your environment, if someone says, you know what, I want to be like Mark Udall, can I can I go out and learn that drive, that that desire to be vulnerable and find my own metal and work through, like you said, two hours a day, you're you're excited to be at high altitude, and the, the other twenty two, <laughs> you're cursing that you even put on the backpack, right, in the booth. But can yeah, you I, learn I, that? You think? I, I do. I do believe that. I think that there there are going to be a certain percentage of people who who who, who just won't find that that mojo but again i don't write them off because there may be other ways for them to find that but i saw it over and over again an hour bound and in a month's time you put people out in a wilderness setting and you teach them the skills they need you encourage them you coach them you you help them make mistakes you let them make mistakes you put them in situations where they're going to make mistakes mistakes that aren't going to be fatal or aren't going to cause injury but mistakes from from which they'll learn that's another part of my passion about all this is even today, making mistakes is one of my mantras. How, how do you learn if you don't make mistakes? I, I learned a lot less when I was successful climbing a mountain or navigating a 20-mile canyon or running a big rapid than when I got myself flipped in the rapid and got sucked out of my kayak and then had to swim down to the bottom of the rapid, collect everything after the yard sale like you have on a ski slope. <laughs> and, and, then, and then say, okay, that river just told you who's in charge. You got, you got to get back on her waters and, and see what see what next you can learn. Now, that, that's not to be cavalier 
and if downstream there's a 25 foot or 30 foot waterfall that you're and you're going to get killed if you try and go over no you you don't do that but there there are ways you're constantly balancing that risk reward piece you talked earlier about you know it really it leaves no room for whining and complaining. Nobody's coming to your rescue. You certainly touched on humility, right? I think that not just big mountains, but just being out in, in nature can teach you that. I, I find yeah, one of the, one of the things that that I've learned is very impatient, young man. And I think the mountains have taught me patience. Would you agree? Is that something that you've picked up as well? Being out in in extreme environments. Yeah, you 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 can force the issue up to a point, but you're exactly right, Ron. You, Mother Nature has her patterns. You, I'd had to, for example, some of my some of my long sea kayaking paddles in Baja these last four or five years. The big hazard in the winter season down there is the wind, and it starts blowing and it whips the Sea of Cortez into a maelstrom, and you may have to sit on shore for three days until the wind comes down, and you may have somewhere to be. You may you may um, start to go a little bit stir crazy because I, I do have a linear A to B to C mindset at times. I, I want to get my paddling in and I have a journey to do. And mother, and you just have to say, all right, I'm, I'm here. What are the other things I can, I, I can spend my time doing? And it, it drives a certain creativity of, well, I, I certainly can walk and look and learn more about the desert floor and fauna I can write in my journal. I always have a book, of course, meditate, fish just be there and and slow slow down notice more what your mind is doing notice what what's what's happening around you so i yeah i i think you and i would share that same set of experiences and i was certainly as a young man much more impatient and complaining complaining doesn't work with mother nature does it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't (laughs) Doesn't do anything she's not listening you know i think i think i told you all the story when we we last visited to maybe apply more to the life that even I live a larger percentage of my life than, than, than I do outside, which is when I first ran for public office at the state level, one of the ways in which you introduce yourself to people is you knock on doors. And it sounds great, but the first day I went out to knock on doors, since I'm in my mid-late 40s, I was so scared I didn't get out of my car to go knock on doors. And I drove home, and I was, got, I was really mad, mad at myself it's like you, you, you've climbed some of the highest peaks in the world. You've navigated across the, I, I skied one winter 40, 400 miles in 40 days across northern Alaska with a small group. And you've, you've navigated and lived in 50 below temperatures and you can't go knock on somebody's door. What? And, but it, and so I had that, it gave me the strength to the next day. I'm like, I'm getting back out there and, and I'm going to start the process. I don't know if you've all ever done a rappel where you slide down a rope from up high on a cliff and there's an old saying the hardest step in a rappel is the first one because you have to trust your equipment yourself and you step off onto a vertical cliff and everything in your mind every instinct you have is telling you don't do that because you you're you're worried about falling and uh, but once you take that first step then you're on you're on your way so that's a metaphor that we teach in our band i've used used in my life just take that first step off the rappel You've, you've got to trust your equipment, but you've taken the time to get your equipment in place. You, you, you've checked it out. You're mentally ready to go. And that's a powerful metaphor that can apply to a lot of challenges in life. 
And you've seen, you seem to have been pretty successful in a lot of this crazy outdoor adventuring. You know, we were talking about Into Thin Air earlier, which if you haven't read the book, highly recommend it, even if you're not into high altitude climbing. But that's the year, that was the year for a long time that was the most dangerous year, 1996, on Mount Everest. That has since changed when there was a big avalanche in 2014. But in 1996, a lot of famous mountaineers died, and they, they've suffered a lot of ridicule over the yep. decisions that they made, uh, a lot going back to impatience, impatience and money, right? And there's a lot of speculation as to why they made these decisions, and eight climbers died to include, you know, the famous Scott Fisher and, and Rob Hall, who I think you, you know personally, but what do you think it is that has led you to go through all of these missions successfully. I mean, those guys lost their lives, I want to say, in their mid to late 20s, early 30s. You have done a lot in your lifetime, made it, I I think, without any major tragedies for yourself. You have seen some tragedies uh, of other people. Can you speak to that just a little bit and and tell us what what do you think it is that's that's kind of protected you? Yeah, I I, want to be humble and and forthright in the best way I can. Part of why I sit here today uh, with a full life behind me and hopefully a decade or more in front of me is it, it is in part luck. The, the, the three or four mistakes I made that could have resulted in me perhaps getting the chop, as climbers say, didn't happen. But and then but then after those incidents, as a younger man, I took to heart what I what I learned. In often, it's paying attention to your equipment, and it, it's often, in addition, being willing to turn around. And this is what happened on on Everest: is the summit fever is a term you you hear used a lot, and it, it's tied to the ambition and willpower and and the, the motivation you have. But the hardest thing to do, particularly on these high peaks, when you've spent a lot of money, time away from work from your family is to turn around because your mindset is I'm only, I'm only here once I'm willing to push, push it. And it, it's, it's often why, why people don't come home. And that certainly happened on Everest with my friend, Scott Fisher and, and Rob Hall, both of whom I knew and I'd climbed in the old Soviet union with them. The other, the other item that was mixed in there, what was money. And you alluded to that. And most climbers still to this day don't, are motivated by money. They're not commercially attempting these high peaks. You've gone with a small group of friends. You're, there's, there's bigger rewards than, than money, not that money isn't important. And there was competition between the, the different outfitting agencies to get their clients to the summit. So they could, like other businesses, they could say, we have 100% success. And um, it all, and you added a, a, a bad weather spell in the, in the mix and too many people on Everest and you, and you had the terrible events in 1996. I know that many of us began to worry that something like that might happen in the 90s when commercial guiding on Everest became more and more popular because we all knew at those high elevations, even if you're the strongest, most experienced climber in the world, it's every man or woman for him or herself up there. There's not much you can do because it's such an extreme environment, Tara. It's just, it's, as I mentioned, every, every, even doing the simplest things like getting dressed, you get out of breath in your tent, just putting on your clothes, tying your boots, making sure your crampons are properly 
attached to your boots. And, and, and you're basically, this will sound great, but you're basically slowly dying up there. You know, humans can't live above 17,000 feet permanently. That's been proven by studies of the miners in the Andes. So you're in a race with the clock and you're in a race with your own mortality. And to take relatively inexperienced people up onto Everest who, who wanted for any number of reasons to summit was, was, is and was a gamble with people's lives. Now, there have been better screening and better training, and there's even some drugs now that help people better adapt to high altitude. But a lot of us felt like it was it, we'd opened a door that was going to be really hard to shut, and that door wasn't necessarily leading to a safe outcome. I'd mentioned you all earlier before we, we came on the show, when I climbed uh, the Cassine Ridge on Denali, known formerly as Mount McKinley in Alaska, with, with a very close friend of mine, just the two of us, it's a steep 10,000 foot route and it has every kind of climbing, steep rock climbing, ice climbing, mixed climbing, which is snow and rock and ice mixed, steep, straight snow climbing. We It's so steep that in order, if you got in trouble and had to descend, we couldn't carry enough equipment to set the anchors to rappel, to slide down your rope. So when we started up on that route, we knew the only way home was up and over the top wow. of the mountain. We started 12,000 feet, the mountain's 20. And but but that gave us in a way that empowered us and strengthened us to be once we were full in and there's a lot of analogies in, in life in general once we were full in we knew we were going to come up and over the top of the mountain now the last couple of days we we were pouring cold water in the bags that used to have food in them to to drink that water and get a little bit of the calories that were still there in the in the crumbs wow uh, but we, 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 we obviously made it and, and, and came back from that experience. But that also was after, for me, 25 years of experience. And I was probably at the height of my fitness, mentally, physically, emotionally, to undertake a climb like that. Talk about that for a minute, Mark. You know, you've mentioned it twice now, the commitment. Once you commit to something and you, you can... for you at least, you can make your way through it. And the reason why I'm asking is we do a lot of discussion around narrative on this podcast. It comes up from time to time with our different guests, the narrative that we have in our head. And I, I can think of my mountaineering days and what would be in my head going up a certain climb versus another climb. And it wasn't always positive, Mark. (laughs) I wasn't always treating myself very well. And I was sometimes doubting my ability to summit or doubting my ability to just finish a climb strong or to be a good leader, to be a good climbing partner. So for you, what, what, how would the narrative play an impact in what you were doing? And how does that connect to the commitment of there's only one way out of this? Yeah. Yeah, I I shared that the Denali example, knowing though, on other other climbs there was there was escape hatches. There were times when you 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 had to make a decision whether to turn around or keep keep going. And I think over time, I became a little bit more willing to turn back uh, for any number of reasons. I had a family. I had come to further understand that dying in the mountains, which I maybe thought when I was twenty five or twenty six, was a glorious risk to take. I think young people uh, are—they feel more immortal than than we do as we age uh, a little bit. But every oh, I'm Ken Kesey wrote a couple of really great books. One called "Sometimes a Great Yeah, Sometimes a Great Notion." I think is the book 
he wrote about the logging family in uh, Washington or Oregon. And his, the protagonist's name was Hank Stamper. And Hank Stamper would say, there's no such thing as true strength, only varying degrees of weakness. Mm. And that was an insight for me because anybody, we'd have some of the strongest teams of people I would know, like a four-man team when I attempted a high peak in Pakistan called Nanga Parbat, the eighth highest mountain in the world. And each day, one of us would be the strongest and one of us would be the weakest member of the foursome. But it varied. It moved. It changed around. And the key there for me was understanding my day was coming where I was going to feel all in. But my day was coming when that what I had on my back was just slowing me down and really affecting my, my mood as well as weighting down my mood and my and my commitment. The, the great thing there was having that team that was really supportive of each other and uh, and acknowledging that there's no such thing as true strength. There are very varying degrees of weakness. And over time, I, I became more willing to, to turn to turn back because the whole point is to come back. When we tempted Everest on uh, the North Face and we got very high on a route that's still only been climbed once by the Australians in the 1980s, as we, as we drove, we were in Tibet, we're on the north side. We had this amazing view of Everest. We stayed till November, this small, we're six Americans, all friends. And we outlasted the Norwegians, the Russians, the Czechs, we were so proud. <laughs> we got within a day of the day of the summit, but we were all really disappointed. And that much time on a high peak, you you really uh, you deteriorate physically. I probably I weighed in the 160s, and people say, "Oh, you're in great shape." No, I was lost lots of muscle mass, but we were all still really deeply disappointed. And the Sherpa Sirdar, the leader of our Sherpa, we had a small Sherpa team, Dawa, who's now in the states, just an amazing man. He said. He said, Mark, you know, you only get to be in human form every once in a while. This is a Buddhist talking. He said, the mountain will be there forever. He said, but in, so we can return, but it's now time for us to go back to the valleys and our families and contribute to the Dharma. The Dharma is the concept of making society better in a, in a Western context and, and uh, adhering to the golden rule and, and all, some of the values that we hold dear in the West, but also you find in, in the East. And so that, that for me was a really powerful insight. I, I knew it intellectually, but emotionally, as we stood on this high pass at 17,000 feet, looking at Everest, which is still 12,000 feet above where we were. And, and Dawa says, you only get to be in human form every once in a while. So God, I love that. Yeah, yeah. Bring it, bring it back to reality. Bring it bit. back to reality. So, again, I again, I don't want to. Yeah, I want to make sure every your listeners know that I'm as vulnerable and as weak and as challenged as, as anybody in in these adventures I've had, and and uh, the the doubts and the misgivings they they, they creep in, of course. But <clears throat> most of the for me, that's a part of the experience too. Yeah, yeah. Dealing with, with those. those. Yeah. Right. All right, we've been talking about mountaineering, and I love it. Let's you you had a recent adventure where you kayaked down the the Baja, right? Is is that is that right? I don't know. Yeah. I've heard a lot about. Tell us about that. How long was it? How far did you go? And what was that like? And who'd you go with, Mark? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, the last <laughs> when I was heading hour bound, I had this wonderful twenty year career in hour bound. The last ten years, I was a CEO, which was a fascinating job because one day a week I wore a suit working in the real world of board members and 
making sure our budgets worked, so on. And two days of the week, I was in Birkenstocks and a button-down shirt. And the other three days of the week, because I usually work six days, I had a backpack, my back or a paddle in my hands. And I got interested in Bob, California for winter courses and the challenge that sea provides and there's an outbound school in Maine that uses the, the sea as, as the element and environment to challenge people of all walks of life and for some reason mountaineers as they age get drawn to the sea particularly the there's a British tradition of that and the sea has so many faces and so many th- things that it can teach you it's also a, a ruthless mistress too and that's all that's all to say I got really interested in the sea kayaking world and there's some phenomenal adventures that have been undertaken and completed. The man, Ed Gillette, who paddled from San Diego to Hawaii 30 years ago, 75 Ooh. days in a sea kayak. Ooh. There's a German a woman who's paddled all the way around Australia, which took an entire year. And at one point, she did a crossing 250 miles in her kayak. She never got out of her kayak for, for eight days, slept in it. Wow. Did everything. Wow. I mean, it's beyond, comp- even for me, not even for me, for me, it's beyond comprehension. But anyway, I was drawn to the idea of journeys in Baja California. And so over the last five years, I've completed about two dozen paddles down there. But I think the paddle I'd mentioned to you all was I paddled about 200 miles for 18 days alone in, in the uh, winter of, of 2019. And from a little place called Bahia de Los Angeles, to a, a town down the peninsula called Mulahe. And so I was solo. Now I saw fishermen, the occasional yacht or sailing vessel, but I had to be very self-sufficient. I caught fish most days. I carried a little desalinator because there isn't much water in, in Baja California, except right after when it rains. And it's still very wild down there. And it's a remarkable environment because you have the ocean, which is really rich in the life and then the desert, which sits right on the on the ocean, and the flora and fauna in the desert, some of the most unique flora and fauna in the, in, in the world. So it's an it's an ongoing fascinating place. The most serious incident I had along the way, because the wind can be really challenging. The sun's always hunting you, even in even in March and April down there. Was I ran to two drug runners? Oh God! And, uh, wow! And. I basically created a friendship with him. It was only later after this big, these two gun-toting narcos from the mainland had left that I thought, well, that might have, I wonder if that would have turned out (laughs) any differently. My Spanish is basic and it's passable. And I had a long conversation with the head of this twosome. They had a, a big, what they call pongas down there. And they were, I thought they were transplanting desert uh, plants, and then I realized it was just they were just covered. They were covering the boat for all the bales of uh, marijuana they had, and they I, they probably had harder drugs as well. But wow. they were they were basically just trying to make a living. I think I talked to this one man about how he, his parents so they were back in the Sinaloa because they'd come across from the mainland, the Golden Triangle there, and he didn't have a family yet because his work was too dangerous. He kept telling me <laughs> that it was remarkable I was paddling alone and that it was there were very mal gente there are a lot of bad people and I should be I should be really careful I'm sitting there making tea for this man and he's got a big handgun strapped to his to his waist and in the end he told me I had a 
friendly, honest face, and he really appreciated getting to know me. <laughs> but it was only it was only later that, and I, and I don't want to make too much, you know, I don't want to be cavalier again about it. But it was it was one of those adventures that, of course, I, I I won't forget. And I think in the end, he realized I was I was no threat to him, and he wasn't interested in making trouble with a, with a gringo and drawing attention to himself. You aren't kidding when it comes to being lucky. Yeah. yeah. So there's there's a little yeah there's the little bit. So again, I'm and, I, and I'm making light of it a little bit here, but I he asked me if I had a a satellite phone, and I showed him all the I had a I had my uh, inReach, which is an emergency beacon. I had my cell phone, which only I can pair it with an emergency beacon to send messages. And I thought, oh, he wants to call the, where he's dropping his shipment off later today. And then I realized he was maybe as worried about me calling the uh, Federales mm. or, or that I was somehow going to be somebody reported where he was. And for me, it was a live and let live kind of situation. He's out there in a powerboat and I'm there in a muscle powered 17 and a half foot sea kayak. Yeah, he's afraid you might put it on Instagram. He, he wanted yeah, to make I sure did. that. Yeah, yeah, I did. The next morning, I usually get up before the sun comes up and eat and pack and get on the water at first light because the wind tends to be down. It's a beautiful time of day and it hasn't really heated up. And so I'm usually on the water at six, whether I'm by myself or with a group. And I was on the water at five. <laughs> get out of so I, was, I was like, I, I think I need to, and, and I do keep a little profile down there where I, where I camp and, and, but, but generally the people in Mexico and Baja California are, peace-loving, wonderful, accepting people who, who in many ways have taught me how to be more appreciative of what I have. They, they seem as happier, happier than, than, than we are often. They're not overloaded with material goods or great riches. I, I always say that the measure of life is the one with the best stories wins. And, mm. and Mark, you, you certainly got some great <laughs> stories. I would ask well, you... Well, you know, Ron, I, when I... That same time when I thought, you know, I've got to challenge myself, I thought, you know, the richest thing in life, again, for me to say, having grown up in the kind of upper middle class environment and I'm healthy. And so I want to really be respectful of that, particularly as we in our society right now are asking a lot of questions about opportunity and how we treat various communities. But I thought, you know, the, the what I want to do is collect experiences in my life and, and push myself and, and again, feed the rat when when the question comes you, you're going to take on something that's challenging, that's scary, that's an adventure. You're going to pass, or you're going to you're going to jump in, and that actually was partly what drove me into Paul. Drove me the final decision when I was thinking about running for Congress was I was thinking I don't want to. Boy, that's a lot of risk. I, I'm going to have to raise this money. What happens to my family? On and on and on. And I said, you know what? When you turn 70 and you look back and you were 48 and you had a chance to run for Congress. How are you going to feel about taking a pass? And my answer was, I'm not going to feel very good. I'm going to feel like I took a pass when maybe I should have thrown myself into the fray. And and that's that's also been my attitude about climbing and kayaking and all the other adventures I've had in life, including having a family. The greatest adventure of all, what, Mark. What do you do? You do you know this word called retirement? <laughs> <laughs> Well, is, this, is this what you call retirement? <laughs> it's it's a wonderful retirement, and uh, yeah, and it's it's a word. I I don't mind using that word. My wife Maggie, who you all get a kick out of, she's she's a warrior in her own right. She that word's banished from our household, yeah. and she's even got a year or two on me. But she's yeah, because she's going full bore. 
But again, I feel so lucky my health. Uh, I picked my parents and they, they lived long lives. And, and I, I put time into taking care of myself, obviously, like we all try and do. But yeah, I'm going to keep at it. Got little issues here and here and there. And the, the orthopedic community in, in Boulder is not unfamiliar with me. <laughs> Knee, knees, back, all that. But I'm going, yeah. I'm going, I'm doing pretty well. Good for you. I, you're my role model. I, I yeah. say, screw retirement. There's no rocking chair for me. <laughs> yeah, really. Well, Mark, before we head out today, last question we're going to ask you here is when it comes to mental toughness, resilience, and grit, which you clearly have a lot of, what advice do you have for people listening, but but advice that they can actually put into their daily lives? Yeah, I I hope that this is applicable. I, and I re- refer back to that climb on Denali when, when with, with my good friend, Tony Lewis, when I would say we were 10 days into a seven day climb, you know, we, and he looked at me and, and when, when we got to the summit, it was late in the afternoon, the warmest part of the day, and it was 42 below. Now the sun was out and there was just a tiny breeze, but that's still, that's still pretty cold. And he looked at me because we'd been up many, many hours and we had a long way to go. Although we had a, the, the more straightforward, and less challenging descent route, the standard way people climb the mountain, we'd climb. And he looked at me and said, Mark, no condition is permanent. And so that whenever I start to feel overwhelmed or start to feel like I can't do it anymore, I remind myself of that moment with, with Tony. And then, of course, we joke later, well, one condition is permanent. <laughs> but, but, when, but he was applying it to the men, being physically, mentally, emotionally spiritually spent or really stressed that if, if you you keep at it remind yourself that that in the moment you're feeling that way that that condition isn't permanent that you you can you you, you can you can change it by re-engaging with your strength and commitment easy to, easy for me to say sitting here but and it, it isn't always easy for me to embrace that but that's that's one of my uh mantras. Thanks for joining us this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, please tell all your friends. If you didn't, let's just forget this happened and we'll try again next week. Until then, join the revolution to forge metal and connect with us on social media.